0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at PodFeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 10th, 2021, and this is show number 857. I'd like to take a quick moment to wish all of my Canadian friends happy Thanksgiving tomorrow. This week I had the pleasure of being on Bart Bouchot's fabulous Let's Talk Apple podcast along with the MacCast's Adam Christensen. If you haven't listened to Let's Talk Apple before, it's a long look back at the previous month's Apple news. Now, I say that's unique because most shows are trying to be the first one to talk about a story, and the creators of those shows don't have time to take a reasoned view after the dust has settled on a story. Some things turn out to be non-stories, but others turn out to have a much deeper impact than realized on the day they broke. Bart brings the balance to that equation with Let's Talk Apple. In this episode, the four big stories we discussed were the latest Apple antitrust developments in all the courts across the globe, how the European Commission have published a directive to mandate USB-C as a universal charging port for mobile devices, and why we think that's a really bad idea. Then we speed through Apple's California streaming event announcements with a pause to talk about the iPhone 13 Pro's camera, and we wind the show up by reminiscing about our feelings we had on the day Steve Jobs died 10 years ago. Now, I have one more thing I want to add about this episode when you listen to it. At one point, Adam said, "I have one thing I'd like to tell the guys in engineering at Apple. Well, I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear that I called him on the use of the word guys to describe engineers." Now I don't agree I don't regret calling him on that. However, as soon as I said it, Adam walked through out loud his thinking process where he said, "I was using guys generically." and I need to try to stop myself from doing that. What I regret is during that pause, he said he wanted to stop saying it, but I jumped on him right away. So I I didn't give him time to think it through and, and say it himself. He was clearly working it out on his own, and he didn't need me stomping on him and pushing it that hard. I adore Adam, and I apologize to him for doing that. So just pretend I wasn't talking during that part and listen to him. Anyway, you can check out this otherwise fabulous episode of Let's Talk Apple in your podcatcher of choice, or at the link in the show notes to lets talk.ie. I've told you quite a bit about the free and open source app Joplin that Nightwise turned us on to, and I've been so taken with this notebook app that my latest tutorial video for Screencast Online is about Joplin. I cover how to add notebooks, then add notes and to-dos. I demonstrate how you can add multimedia in Joplin and how the different views work in the desktop version. I even dusted off my old Evernote database and for the tutorial, I exported my sushi notebook and uh, then I taught how to pull it into Joplin and have all of the same information preserved from Evernote. I explored tags and search and searching by tags and I took a quick tour of the vast preferences section. I switched to the iPad and iPhone partway through the th- tutorial so I could show how to set up syncing through the service of your choice and how the interface is slightly different on the mobile versions. I taught how to link between notes and how to move and duplicate notes. If you are intrigued by my text and audio description of what Joplin can do, you might find this step by step tutorial helpful in getting started with Joplin. Screencast Online is a subscription service and you can get a free seven day trial over at screencastonline.com. Last week, I was absolutely delighted to hear from so many of my internet and real-life friends that Apple has added pivot tables to their Numbers app. It's a well-known fact that I'm wild about pivot tables. I realize, though, that this opening statement absolutely requires an immediate pause to explain first the problem to be solved, and then an explanation of what pivot tables are and how they solve that problem. Then finally, we can explore how pivot tables work in Numbers. The problem to be solved in its simplest form is that you have a giant pile of data and you want to get information out of that giant pile of data. So information and data are two very different things. Perhaps you're a system admin at a university and you have three, a 3,000-line 3, spreadsheet with user IDs, class names, instructors, and testing requirements, and you need to condense this down to some actionable information. Maybe you're the manager of a large city's intramural sports team, and you've got detailed data about the players, the sports they are playing, the field names, and the coaches, and you need situational awareness in case a storm is coming through town on how to contact people efficiently. Maybe you've been doing freelance work, and you've downloaded all of your income and expense, and you want to figure out where your income is coming from by category. Maybe you downloaded your health data for all of your exercise and you want to obsess over it, but you need to see it in nice piles by type of exercise with total calories burned. Or maybe you just had solar panels installed and the Sense Solar you added to your electrical panel has given you a 1208 line long comma separated value file of your solar generated or your solar power generation and your power consumption during the same time period. You'd like to understand how much of each type of device the sense identified used in energy over the last three months, and whether you collected enough energy from the sun to compensate for that usage. All of these problems have lots of data in lots of columns and rows, and it's very hard to get real information out of that data. You can use filters and manual subtotals to try to get information out of this data, but it's tedious, and you can't have your different views of the data at the same time. When you get an update to your data, you have to entirely recreate all of your filtering. This is where pivot tables save the day. Pito Salas, working at the Lotus Corporation in the 1980s, noted that spreadsheets have patterns of data. A tool that could help the user recognize these patterns would help build advanced data models quickly. His work was included with Lotus Improv, released in 1991 on the Next platform, and with it users could define and store sets of categories, then change views by dragging category names with the mouse. Since then, pivot tables have been incorporated into Excel, LibreOffice, OpenOffice, and Google Sheets. Pivot tables today pretty closely match the vision Mr. Salas had over 40 years ago, and they're an easy way to organize all that data into actionable information simply by dragging and dropping category names with a mouse, just like he wanted to do. I say it's easy, and it really and truly is easy, but it's weird, so it often intimidates people. I promise it's easy, and maybe by explaining it through numbers and an example, I can convince you to at least give it a try next time you have a lot of data to work through. I went back through the archives and found the first time I ever talked about pivot tables on the no- Silicast was on show number 25 in January of 2006. In that episode, I was talking about trying to get pivot tables to work in star office from Sun Microsystems. They don't even exist anymore. All right. Now let's talk about pivot tables and numbers. Spoiler up front, pivot tables and numbers are fantastic. If you've used pivot tables in other spreadsheet software applications, you'll be able to figure out how to use them in numbers quite easily. For the purposes of this article, I'm gonna assume you've never used pivot tables before or you use them so infrequently that learning how to use them from scratch in numbers would be helpful. I'm also really pleased to say that there is feature parity of pivot tables between the Mac, the iPad, and iPhone in Apple Numbers. I've been doing my testing while going back and forth between the Mac and iPad, and it's been really easy and intuitive to work on both platforms. That's in huge contrast to Excel on the iPad. I'm sorry to use such harsh language, but Excel on the iPad is just poopy. It's extremely limited in capability, and so of course it does not have pivot tables at all. Another spoiler. I've had enough fun using pivot tables and numbers that I might just finally switch over to numbers from Excel. I've tried numbers many times before, but the interface is just different enough that I've always abandoned it. Using numbers with pivot tables may have turned me though. No promises, but I'm gonna give it a shot. Now that I've spoiled the ending, I'd like to teach you how to create pivot tables of your own. There are a couple of things you need to know before you can create a pivot table. First, you need a giant pile of data. You also need every column in your data set to have a title. If any of the columns don't have a title, the pivot table won't include that column of data or anything to the right of it, so make sure your, all of your columns have titles even if you're not going to use a specific column. To start a pivot table in any of these spreadsheet applications I've tested, you click on any old cell in the spreadsheet that has data in it, and then you ask for a pivot table from the menus. In modern spreadsheet applications, you'll get a new tab in your document. From here you're going to do some simple drag and drop to make the table give you the information you desire. Describing how to make the pivot table do what you want is far clumsier than actually doing it. I should say that my next video tutorial for Screencast Online will be on how to do pivot tables in numbers. I haven't started doing it yet, but when that time comes I'll tell you about it. I tried four times to come up with a non-clumsy way to describe it in a generic sense and I failed all four times. So instead, I'm going to switch to a real-life example, and hopefully that will allow me to explain it without just making your head spin. As you follow along, I want you to remember one thing. The trick of pivot tables is to play with them. It's super easy to drag and drop the fields around, and you'll get ridiculous results that aren't anything like what you want. But you can just drag the fields back out or delete the whole pivot table sheet and start over with zero loss of data. That's because pivot tables are just a view into your real data, so you cannot break anything. You're just making stupid pivot tables at first. Now, I said that you'll create ridiculous pivot tables at first, but there's actually value to those stumbles. Sometimes you end up with the pivot table that you need rather than the pivot table that you meant to make. Remember, before you start, You don't understand your data, and the pivot table's reason for being is to reveal that understanding. So, I've found many times that I end up with a different pivot table than what I started trying to build. The example I'm going to use to explain pivot tables in numbers is our electrical energy usage and solar energy production. We just had solar put-ins, and so, of course, we're obsessed with the data. On Jamie Cox's recommendation, we bought a Sense Solar, which is a device that collects and analyzes our electrical energy usage, and it also collects our solar production. Over time, the Sense learns what our different devices are by using their energy waveform profiles, and Steve's been actively naming them as the Sense identifies them. So Sense will say something like, hey, I found something, might be a refrigerator, and Steve will identify it as the kitchen fridge. As you can imagine, we're enjoying the heck out of all this data, and we want to analyze it over time. We especially want to track whether our total energy usage is less than our total solar production over time. Now, sure, the electric company will tell us, but they're three months behind getting started doing it, so we wanted to look at it ourselves, and of course to check them. You know what, this kind of data analysis is what happens when nerds marry. The Sense web app has a button to download a comma-separated value, or CSV, file of all of our data for the year. So far, that's just July, August, and most of September, but it's still a lot of data. It's a lot of data because there are multiple lines for each day of the month for each of the different devices for which it recorded data. For example, on July 12th, it reported the kilowatt hours of energy usage of the kitchen fridge, the oven, the garbage disposal, the bathroom lights, and more. The data also has a twist, which will be a perfect thing to explain a feature of pivot tables. Not only does this one CSV file have all of the energy usage of every single device it knows about, the same data file has buried in it subtotals for the days and the solar power generated for those days. For example, scanning down a column of names, it'll say main bathroom light, solar production, kitchen fridge, garage fridge, total usage, wine fridge. Well, all of the solar production numbers are negative, and that's going to really mess up my pivot table, and the total usage will double the usage if I don't do this properly. But don't worry your pretty little head about that. Pivot tables can solve this problem very easily. There's a lot of columns in our energy data that I'm not going to use. I only care about three columns. The date, the name of the device using the energy, and the kilowatt hours for the device on that date. My goal is to be able to see in one tidy table each month's total solar energy usage and or, sorry, total energy usage and total solar power produced. On the iPad, if I select any cell in my number spreadsheet, a bright green cell button will appear at the bottom with a very exciting lightning bolt next to it. It's just begging to be clicked. You'll be rewarded if you do, because among other things revealed, you'll find Create Pivot Table. Would you believe this works on the iPhone too? On macOS, selecting a cell adds a new menu option in the toolbar to add a pivot table. We're now faced with a blank pivot table, but to the right are pivot options. Here we have a list of the column headings from our source data, and there are no options to use as fields. In my example, I can see the date-time field, the name of the device that consumed energy, and the column for kilowatt hours. I'm going to be ignoring everything else, but those are going to be my fields. At this point, all we have to do is drag the fields we care about to build the table, dragging to columns, rows, and then values in the cells. Now, for some reason, I don't know what it is about rows versus columns, but it's often hard to keep those two straight. At least in my family, they have trouble describing this when they're playing the card game golf. We always say columns when we mean rows and rows when we mean columns. Luckily, with numbers, it provides you with a handy little graphic to show you which one they mean when they say columns and which one they mean when they say rows. The data fields in the middle are the easy ones to keep track of. Now, my plan is to drag the dates to be the rows, the names to be the columns, the names of the devices, and then the kilowatt hours of each to be the values. This should give me a pivot table with the dates down the left, the names of the devices consuming energy across the top, and the kilowatt hours of each device consumed as the values in this table by date. The pivot table will also create a total column on the right, so I'll be able to see the total energy consumed by day and a row across the bottom with the total for each device. Well, technically, this did work exactly as I just described it to you. The resultant pivot table is awful. I now have 25 columns of devices, including those pesky total usage and solar production columns. Remember that the values for solar production in kilowatt hours are negative values, and total usage is doubling all of the energy consumed, so this table is a hot mess. The whole idea was to turn data into information, but I'd be darned if I can draw any conclusions from this pivot table. Now remember, I said to play with pivot tables until you get the information you need. Even though it did exactly what I told it to do, it wasn't at all what I expected. Now before we abandon this pivot table, let me expand, explain how we would fix that problem of the data set including those two columns for solar production and total usage in our pivot table. In the upper right of the toolbar, when you have the pivot table selected, you'll see a typical filter icon. It's a green circle with descending with white lines in it. This brings up not just the pivot options we saw when we created the pivot table, but there's also a filter tab. From here we can choose which of the fields we'd like to filter. So I'm going to choose names, which are our column headings. This reveals a list of all the column headings, such as kitchen fridge and bathroom lights, but it also shows me solar production and total usage. I can simply uncheck those two columns with the handy-dandy radio buttons and boom, both columns have completely disappeared from my pivot table. But much more importantly, it's also not including their values in those total calculations on the right side of my pivot table. At this point, the pivot table is trying its little heart out to please me, but it's not meeting the mark. I can't look at this giant array of numbers and glean any knowledge. When I created the same pivot table in Excel, I added some conditional formatting so that I could define an energy usage value above which I'd find a device interesting. That highlighted just some values in red. Now, numbers does have conditional formatting, and I tried to use that, but they don't have it in pivot tables, so that was a little bit of a bummer. Now, it wasn't all that helpful, even in Excel, because there, there's just still too much data in here. Not only are all these columns just a jumble of information, the pivot table is 82 lines long because every day has its own row. It's better than the 1208 rows I started with in the original data, but I'd really rather just see the months rather than the days. In case you're wondering, I looked back at the Sense web app to see if I could get it by month instead of by day, but that was not an option. Luckily, a pivot table should be able to easily show it to me by month. I'd like to pretend that getting this to a reasonable final pivot table view was a walk in the park, but instead I'm going to tell you the reality of working with spreadsheets. Invariably, one column of data will not be formatted correctly, so it doesn't play nice and it takes you ages to figure out why it has its panties in a bunch. The problematic column of data is almost always a date or a time. All spreadsheet applications stink at dates and times. Now, I said that our energy data came in with the date in the left column. I lied. It came in with the date and time. So instead of saying 2021 07 12, it said 2021 07 12 and then a space 00 00 00. Well, that was the first problem. The second problem was that while it looked like a date and time, it was actually a text string. Spreadsheets recognize text strings that look like dates, but that does not make them real dates. Now, why do we care about that? Because in order to have our pivot table recognize that the, there are years and months f- and, and give us a nice subtotal by month, we need the data to be a real date. This data set from Sense had the same problems in Excel and in Numbers. I worked on this for a while in Excel where I'm a lot more comfortable, and after quite a bit of work, I figured out how to fix the format. But the same solution didn't work in Numbers. After noodling it on my own for quite a while, I throw out a call for help in our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, looking for numbers nerds. Well, luckily, Richard Piazza answered the call, and he helped me figure it out. Normally, when a column is pesky like this, I add another column, and then I do some spreadsheet foo on it, like tell it to give me the left seven characters— That would turn 2021 07 12 space and all the the time into just 2021 07. That would have just given me all months, and that's what I really wanted. I was able to do that with my data, but the pivot table still didn't see it as a date. It still thought it was a string. Once once Richard took a look at my file, he pointed out he's the one who pointed out I didn't have a real date. He told me about a function called dateValue, and that turns a text version of a date into a real date. That meant all I needed to do was add a column, and to the right of the original date and column, I was able to put in date value parentheses A2. Look at the the thing in A2 and just turn it into the date value. When I did that, it worked perfectly. A quick trip to the format menu, and I was now now able to set the format to just show me the year and month instead of all of that glop in the date. The next task was to fill that calculation all the way down so I'd have a full column of real dates. I know how to do a fill down in Excel, but for the life of me, I couldn't figure it out in Numbers. I was uninterested in dragging the fill handles in Numbers down 1,208 rows, so I asked Richard for more help. The best thing Richard did was he taught me how to fish instead of fishing for me. Instead of telling me the answer, he told me how to find the help menu in Numbers on iPadOS, because I didn't even know there was one. It's hidden in the three dots inside a circle icon in the upper right of the screen. Before sending me to the help menu, Richard verified the trick to fill down was in help. If you want to know how to do it, it's command backslash to get the little grab handles and then command down arrow to fill all the way to the bottom. Once you fill down, command up arrow takes you back to the top to get to work. Now I know this was a big side story that's supposed to be about pivot tables, but I'm telling you something like this happens every time I make a pivot table, so I figured it was better to walk you through this example than to pretend it never happens. It always happens with dates and times. So after entitling my new shiny column month year, I deleted the original pivot table and I started over. Remember I told you, you can just delete them. Pivot tables, they're just a view, so just delete it when it gets too confusing and messed up. I could have modified the original one, but sometimes I think it's easier to think with a blank slate. As soon as I dragged the month into the rows and kilowatt hours into the data box, the pivot table created three rows, one for each month of data, and a column for the total of kilowatt hours for the month. Finally, I've got a tiny little pivot table that gives me exactly the information on energy consumption by month, which is what I wanted in the first place. But wait a minute, why is the total of one of the months negative? Ooh, I forgot I have to filter out solar production and total usage again since I deleted the pivot table where we fixed that. The data that came from the sense was out to three significant digits for the energy consumed, which makes sense in a detail view because some devices sip energy, but it was just distracting in my high-level pivot table. In every pivot table function in the various spreadsheet programs I've used, you have to select all of the data cells by tapping and dragging in the Go to the Format tab and change the number format to zero decimals. It's a tedious way to do it, but I don't know of another way. If anybody knows how to do that in any spreadsheet applications, I'd really like to know. As I looked at my nice, simple pivot table, I realized it only told half the story. I eliminated the solar production, so all this is showing me is our consumption. It'd be really cool if I could get that data in the same pivot table, but since the solar production data is all intermingled, I couldn't really figure out a way to do it separately. But I got something that I think is pretty workable. I figured out that you can copy a pivot table in numbers simply by selecting the little pivot table symbol in the upper left of a selected table and hitting copy. I pasted this duplicate to the right of the original. Now I only had to go into the name filter, and instead of selecting all but solar production and total usage, I hit deselect all and selected only solar production. That gave me a table just like the consumption table, but now it's for solar production. I can see over the first three months of our solar panels and data collection, we've generated more than double the amount of energy we consumed. Now, I know July through September are some of the highest energy production months we'll get, and the sun's going to start being lower in the sky and shine less often, but getting double the solar energy with two electric vehicles eating up power is still looking pretty awesome. And you know what? That's what this is about. I have turned this 1208-line spreadsheet into knowledge I did not have before. Once you get a pivot table doing what you want, you'll start thinking of what else you can do and you'll start making more pivot tables or modifying the one you originally created. I looked at my simple table and I wondered, what would it look like if instead of having one month as the row headings, what if they were the column headings? Then I thought, maybe I could put the names of the devices back in as the rows. This gave me a slightly more dense table, but it's also very interesting. I've still only got three columns of energy data for the three months plus the grand total, but the rows are each of the devices. I can see, for example, that the EV charger accounts for 292 out of the total 1512 kilowatt hours we consumed in three months. If I wanted to get fancy, I could change all of these values into percentages of the rows or columns so I wouldn't have to calculate to know that the EVs account for 19% of our total energy consumption. Now, I only bring this last pivot table up to warn you that you might be drawn into my madness if you start down this path. Now, your reward for paying attention this long is that you're going to learn the most important thing to know about pivot tables. The people who drifted off to sleep earlier will miss this part, and they're going to be sorry later. Pivot tables do not refresh themselves when the data changes. Let me repeat this another way to make sure you heard me. You have to manually refresh your pivot tables if you want them to reflect the most recent data. In iOS and Numbers, tap on any cell in the table, then tap that exciting lightning bolt cell button and you'll see Refresh Pivot Table. On the Mac, either go to the Organize menu and pull down to Refresh Pivot Table or just right-click in any cell and you'll have access to Refresh right there. Now, aren't you glad you stayed awake for that part? If for some reason you want to maintain a copy of the pivot table to freeze the data in time, you can create what Apple calls a snapshot. I've never seen this in any other spreadsheet app, but I mean, I may have just missed it, but I thought that was pretty cool. To create a snapshot, simply select the little pivot table icon in the upper left of your selected pivot table and then tap on the exciting green lightning bolt table icon in the bottom right and you'll see an option to copy snapshot. You can paste this into a new sheet and now it'll be just a dumb table. Now, Would you believe that I've only scraped the surface of what you can do with pivot tables? This top surface is what I do most often with pivot tables, and as you can tell, this excites me a lot. I am just thrilled about pivot tables and numbers, and I want to thank all of the people who told me about them when the announcement came out, and a special last shout out to Richard Piazza for helping me with that pesky date formatting.
1: Hello, Allison. It's Rick from Baltimore. One of my favorite features that I think debuted in iOS 15 is the ability to change font sizes by app rather than system-wide. The problem to be solved is I like to enlarge the font on both my iPad and my iPhone to make things more readable for my aging eyes. Before iOS 15, I could go to settings and make the font larger, However this was a universal setting and applied to all apps that support dynamic type sizes. In some apps though, the larger font did not render correctly or was too large and scrolled off the screen or changed how a web page looked. For example, some web pages in Safari were almost unreadable due to the larger font size I selected. Whenever I increased the font size universally. I ended up setting it back to the normal default because of these issues. But in iOS and iPadOS 15, you can go to Settings, Accessibility, then scroll to the bottom and tap Per App Settings. Then I can add an app and customize font size and many other options to my liking. And those changes only impact that individual app. So now I can have Apple Notes app show the larger font I like without ruining safari web pages, etc. If this pre existed pre iOS 15, I apologize, but I don't recall seeing it. I hope everyone stays well. Bye bye.
0: Well as soon as Rick sent this awesome tip over, I checked in with Shelley Brisbane, author of the book iOS Access for All, because if anyone knew about it, it would be Shelly. She confirmed that this is a brand new feature of iOS 15. So great find, Rick. I gotta say, the app that's given me fits since day one in the iPhone is Apple Maps. If you zoom in to try to read a street name, it'll briefly be larger and then it'll shrink back down to microscopic size. I followed Rick's instructions and I went to Settings Accessibility and then chose Per App Settings. That took me to a pretty empty screen with an invitation to add app. I chose Maps and I was delighted to see an absolute plethora of options. For each option, if you leave them as default, it'll follow whatever global accessibility changes you've made, if any. That's really slick because maybe like Rick, you want the font size cranked up for most apps, but for Safari, you can change just its font size to work better with web layouts. Under Display and Text Size, you can enable or disable bold text and larger text, add shapes to buttons, turn on and off labels, and reduce transparency and blurs to to increase legibility. You can increase contrast. You can replace user interface items that rely solely on color to convey information with alternatives by turning on differentiate without color. Smart Invert reverses the color of the display, except for images, which might be very helpful in just some applications. You can reduce motion on a per app basis, including the parallax effect of icons. I know that's really annoying for some people, so that's pretty cool. Finally, you can disable autoplay video previews. Man, I might want that disabled system-wide. Even if you aren't suffering vision loss yet, you may want to find a few apps to adapt more to your needs without changing the entire iOS interface. You might also be in the opposite situation. You know, a friend of mine likes her font size really big, so she has it set to a large size system-wide. But some apps look simply awful, like Rick said. She was delighted when I showed her Rick's discovery of per-app accessibility settings in iOS 15. Thank you so much for this, Rick. If you're a huge fan of the PodFeed podcast, I bet you'd really like a fancy coffee mug with logos of the NoCillaCast, Chit Chat Across the Pond, and Programming by Stealth on it. Steve designed just such a mug for you, and it's absolutely gorgeous. The inside of the mug is a dark, rich blue, and the handle and rim match that fabulous blue. If you're not a blue person, you can change it to nine other colors. The red is kind of a great option to complement the No logo. In any case, the mugs are $16.95 at Zazzle.com, and when I checked it recently, there was a discount code, so depending on when you go in, you might get a discount code on that. Show your support for the shows we do here at the PodFeed podcast by getting yourself a new mug to delight yourself and to show other people about the show. This week, a whistleblower named Frances Haugen went before a U.S. Senate subcommittee to testify about Facebook. You might have heard about it. I actually watched most of her testimony, and I have to say, it was bone-chilling. Ms. Haugen was a data scientist who was part of a civic integrity committee, and in fact, she joined the company specifically to work on that committee. She testified that after the U.S. presidential election, the civic integrity committee was disbanded. No matter your politics, I think we can all agree that Facebook needs to keep working on civic integrity. One thing that has bothered me is when people hand-ring about Facebook trying to keep people on their platform as long as possible. I don't blame them one bit for that. If I have a company that makes soap... I'm going to try to find every way I can to get you to use my soap and try to convince you to use more of it. Maybe ship dirt to your house so you have to use more soap. That makes complete sense to me. The difference, according to Ms. Haugen, is that the data they have and the data they acted on to increase engagement on their platform, they have determined that the most inflammatory, negative material is what makes us engage with the content. I suppose this shouldn't be a surprise. We've always known that the lizard brain portion of our brains can't look away from a train wreck as it's happening. But Facebook actively uses that information to give us more inflammatory and more negative information to drive us to use their product more. Now, I bet a bunch of you are hollering into your phones, gee, Allison, did you just figure this out? Well, I didn't actually just figure it out, but it's the first time I can't think of any way to explain it away. Bart convinced me a year or so ago to watch a documentary called The Social Dilemma on Netflix. It's actually available in full uh, on, um, on YouTube. You can watch it in full there. This documentary dove deep into the way the algorithm works at Facebook, Pinterest, and a lot of other companies to keep us engaged. The documentary left me with a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach, and it did have a big impact on me. But I was able to compartmentalize what I learned because this presentation was highly theatrical in how they demonstrated the problem. Listening to Ms. Haugen testify under oath, that just really floored me. One example that came up during her testimony was an experiment run by the Tech Transparency Project. They created six ads which were designed specifically to target the teenage user of Facebook in a harmful way. One was an ad that directed girls to uh, what it said was Anna tip. That's short for anorexia tip. The senator talking about this explained that anorexia is the leading cause of death in teenagers of all mental health problems. Another one of the ads said, throw a Skittles party like no other, and it had a backdrop of a pile of prescription pills. I had to look this up, but evidently a Skittles party is where kids go into their parents' medicine cabinets and then just hand out pills to each other to see what happens. The other uh, other ads that that the Tech Transparency Project created promoted alcoholic drinks, smoking, data services, and gambling to teenagers. Now, as I said, the Tech Transparency Project created these six ads, and they aimed them at ages 13 to 17 in the U.S., and Facebook approved them within less than an hour. Now, think about that for a minute. I said bone-chilling. You, you see why I felt that way? Now, Ms. Haugen explained that the way the algorithm works, she is certain that no human ever saw that ad purchase request. Now, I should mention that the Tech Transparency Project canceled those ads before they ran, but they were trying to make a point. I'm telling you about how I feel about this because I'm taking a break from Facebook and all of its other properties, including Instagram. I've been pulling away very slowly over the last few years because... I don't know, I find that they really give me joy. I remember one day looking at a gorgeous sunset and immediately thinking about how I would compose my Facebook post to show it to everyone. My first thought was not, wow, that's really beautiful. It was, how do I compose a photo to make everybody know how awesome my life is? I was starting to see the world through the lens of how I would show my world to others. Now, I've never really liked Instagram much anyway. I, have, I like to have conversations with people, and Instagram isn't just really made for that. Now, I'm not committing to quitting Facebook just yet, but I'm trying the idea on to see how it feels. Probably the thing I will miss most is the NoCillicast Facebook community. I love chatting with you there and sharing cool geek stories. But I also love the Slack community, and to be perfectly honest, it's a lot more engaged than the Facebook community is. I think one of the reasons for that engagement is the channels. In Slack, we have channels for different topics, and you can choose to follow which ones you want and even get notifications from just the subjects that interest you. For example, if you're into programming, the Programming by Stealth channel is hopping. But if you're not, maybe you care a lot about security and the Security Bits channel is more for you. I know the Facebook group is a great place where people like to share deals. In Slack, we have a dedicated channel for deals. So if you care about it, you'll always get them. If you don't care about it, you can skip them. One of my favorite channels is called Delete Me. That's where you can post things that are maybe more tech-adjacent and maybe made you laugh. We even have a channel called No Silica Castaways Show Off. Bart posts his Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography podcast there. Alistair Jenks posts amazing bird photos he's taking with his new DSLR lens. Elle Butler posts scripts he's written. Jill from the Northwoods posts photos from her rooftop tent and her camping trips. And Ed Tobias posts about his fun adventures moving to GitHub. There is no theme other than, I did this, or I found this, and I'm proud of it. I don't know what will happen in the long run, but there's a good chance I'm done with Facebook. I suspect I'll be happier when I do plug the, pull the plug, but for now, I'm just testing the waters to see if I miss it. It's been about a week, and I'm not really missing it yet. So I hope to see all of you in Slack sometime soon over at podfeed.com slash Slack. I am a huge fan of dictating requests to my Apple devices. For some reason, many times when I suggest this to other people, uh, you know, that they give this a try, they say, I don't like to talk to my devices. Well, I think if you're around people all the time, that certainly makes sense because you don't want to bother them and you don't want to look like you could use some mental health services but if you've been holding back, perhaps what I have to say will convince you to give it a whirl. I'm wild about dictation, and I've figured out a couple of tiny tips that might make it more useful for you. Probably the thing I dictate the most often is reminders. If I'm driving or running or walking, I don't want to mess with my phone. It's obviously dangerous when driving, but for me, even walking is life-threatening. Remind me to tell you sometime about the time I hit my head on the sidewalk simply walking Tesla and how I had her vet test me to see if I had a concussion. That day, I wasn't even playing with my phone. Now, I listen to a lot of podcasts, now, not a lot like compared to Jill from the Northwoods, but still a lot, and I'll often hear something interesting I want to check out later. In my case, I'm normally wearing AirPods, so without needing to pause the podcast, I'll say, hey, yes, lady, remind me to look for that iPhone case Dave Hambleton mentioned on the Mac Geek app. Obviously, something like this isn't a critical action item, so it's not worth stopping and pecking out a reminder of myself on this tiny iPhone screen. Often when I get back from a run, I can have a half dozen reminders waiting for me. I don't necessarily do all these things when I get back, but at least I'll be reminded that at some point I thought it was interesting enough to set up a reminder. If I really do need to execute one of my reminders, I'll add a time to the end. I'll say, remind me to write to Carl at 10.30am today. The precise time isn't always important, but I usually pick a time when I'm sure I'll be back home. This will tickle me to do it instead of waiting for me to open up reminders to see what I thought was important on my run. But here's a little tip about timed reminders. The other day I inadvertently said remind me at 10 a.m. instead of 1030. I wasn't sure I'd be back home in time for that reminder. Sometimes when I mess up like this, I'll just dictate a second reminder, but this week I discovered that you can actually have S Lady adjust the time. Right after saying, remind me at 10 a.m., I said, change the time on that last reminder to 10.30 a.m., And guess what, it worked. I was pretty stoked about that. Now, one problem to be solved in dictating to your phone is when you forget what you need to say partway through. If you pause for any length of time at all, your voice assistant will assume that you're finished, and it'll execute whatever partial information you gave. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to get a moment to gather your thoughts without the voice assistant assuming you're finished? Here's my little trick. Just drag out the last syllable of the last word you're saying before you got stuck. Let's say my example of setting a reminder to call Carl. I am notoriously bad at names, which means there's a better than 50-50 chance that by the time I get to the name, I'll need a moment. If I say, remind me to write to... and I pause lady will give me a reminder that simply says, write to. Instead, what I'll say is, remind me to write to Carl. And I can hold that last syllable until Carl's name comes into my head. I'm sure I sound like an idiot to anybody walking by, but at least I get a correctly transcribed reminder when I get home. When I remember to use this little trick, it works every time. I also use Siri to dictate messages to people when I'm walking or running. Stephen Getz and I enjoy chatting about things the Accidental Tech podcast hosts say, and there's no way I can remember when I get home to tell him something about the show I'm listening to while running. If you want to send some uh, to someone on Apple Messages, you can simply say, Hey, S-Lady, send a message to Dave Hamilton. And then when she's ready, dictate your message. I'm not a big iMessage user, and instead, Telegram is my messaging service of choice. Luckily, it's quite simple to send to Telegram instead. I simply say, hey, yes, lady send a telegram to Stephen Getz. I haven't tested it yet, but I imagine it would work with Signal or other me- messaging services. For the most part, dictation of my little messages through AirPods works remarkably well. Most people receiving dictated message messages will figure out pretty quickly that you're dictating because of the occasional typo, and especially if a very similar-sounding word is inserted in place of what you meant. People don't seem to mind these little typos. But what do you do if S-Lady misinterprets what you say and the entire point of the message gets borked as a result? Or worse yet, what if she inserts profanity that you definitely did not mean? After you complete your dictation, she'll read it back to you and say, ready to send it? Well, obviously in this case, the answer is no. But she doesn't destroy the message when you say no. Instead, she goes, okay, let me know when you're ready to send it. But what if you don't ever want to send it? With that message glued to her sticky little fingers, you don't have the option to dictate a new message. If you try to, she'll say, no, I've already got this message. I'm ready to send it. Do you want me to send it? For the last few years, I've tried all kinds of phrases to try to get her to abandon that message so I can immediately dictate the correct message. I've tried delete, throw it away, stop, never send, and nothing worked to make her let go of the borked message. I always just wait her out until she gets bored and drops my message somewhere random, and then I can ask her again to send a telegram to Stephen Getz about how annoying Marco was when he was insulting all Californians. I finally found the keyword she needs to get her to abandon a message. It's to simply say, erase. I am incredibly happy that I can finally get her to let me dictate a new message while I still have a chance of remembering what I have to say. Now, something's just occurred to me, I just figured this out, and I wonder whether they just added a race in iOS 15. Oh, well, I'll never know, but a race works. Now, my last and final tip on dictating messages and reminders is speak very quickly. I hear some people sounding the words out super carefully saying, remind me to, and it turns out that seems to be less successful for me than rapid and natural speech. Based only on my anecdotal observations, I think maybe S-Lady needs the context around what you're saying in order to figure out the words, and if you go too slowly, she doesn't have that context. If you watch the dictation real-time, when you're going quickly, you'll often see an incorrect word typed, and after enough context is added, it sorts itself out. Now maybe you still won't dictate into your devices after hearing my tips. But hopefully, if and when you do dictate, these tiny tips will help you enjoy the experience more often. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron? podfeet.com slash patreon. You want to give a one-time donation? podfeet.com slash paypal. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Slack at podfiecom slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Yope did at what I think is almost three o'clock in the morning for him, you can head on over to podfiecom slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific, Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.